Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Too often we look at parenting practices and our judgment of them in absolute terms. I know I myself have been guilty of this on several occasions. Sometimes it's warranted, but sometimes the judgments and the repercussions become a way that we disenfranchise and marginalize already marginalized groups in our society. When we think about the experiences of families facing involvement from government systems, many of which are founded on principles that are racist in nature, we can start to understand how the systems mean to support children may end up doing the opposite. This week I'm joined by Dr. Paula Jay, a scholar focusing on social justice, racism, critical race theory, and more, as we discuss the parenting experiences of marginalized families in Canada, and by extension other Western nations, today. This is a conversation that may be uncomfortable for some, and I can say it certainly led me to think about things I had held as absolute truths in ways I hadn't before. If nothing else, it should challenge us to think harder about how we think of parenting. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Paul Bonahini Ajay. He is currently the Interim Dean and the Associate Dean of Graduate Programs, an Associate Professor at the School of Social Work at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Paul is a public speaker, a trainer, an educator, and a researcher in the areas of social justice, anti-Black racism, critical race, critical whiteness studies, and anti-colonial theory. He received his undergraduate degree in social work from the Department of Social Work of the University of Ghana. He has a master's and a PhD degree from the University of Toronto, specializing in social justice education. Paul is presently serving on numerous committees at Memorial University and the broader Newfoundland community. He is a member of the President's Advisory Committee on Indigenous Affairs and played an active role in the development of Memorial's Strategic Framework for Indigenization. He is also a member of the Committee on Ethical Research Impacting Indigenous Groups. He serves as a member of the Steering Committee for Memorial University School of Social Work and Nanavit Arctic College Partnership to develop a BSW program for Nanavit Arctic College. Paul is also a member of the Visiting Indigenous Elders Pilot Project at the School of Social Work. Paul serves as a member of the Newfoundland and Labrador English School District Advisory Committee and the Newfoundland and Labrador RCMP Black Engagement Steering Committee. He is also the director of the Ghanaian Community of Newfoundland and Labrador Association. With all of that, how did you have time to even talk to me today? Because I don't even feel like you should sleep with that much going on. Well, for a moment, I thought you were introducing somebody else. My goodness! Thank you so much for being here. You are welcome, and I'm I am you know I'm very grateful for the invitation. Uh, this is well, your work is really incredible, and I came across a paper. We're going to talk more in depth about your work in a moment, but when I came across it, it was so refreshing to see the kind of work you're doing being done in Canada. And I say that as a Canadian because there seems to be a blind eye here to a lot of the. Uh, racist, white supremacist, historical, um, and, and therefore current issues because they are so systemically rooted. And I think we tend to take a look to our neighbors to the south and feel a little superior. And I'm not really sure we should. So I think it's so wonderful to see that you're doing this and bringing this also to the schools, to younger kids, to have this kind of education start earlier and earlier because I don't think they're getting it, are they? No, I, I don't think. And uh that 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 unfortunately is a failure of our education system. Uh, 
we seem not to prepare our, our children uh, for the reality of the world that we live in. And so, you know, our children live with this sense of comfort and, and com complacency. Uh, the, the challenge is that they grow up and suddenly the reality done on them, that they have been lied to throughout the education. And, and in many ways, it, it doesn't help because it, it, you know, it constitutes a form of miseducation where we don't provide the true reflection of our history and also the reality of the society we live in to our children. Uh, I think that we should be, education system should be able to trust our children enough that they, they, when they receive adequate and sufficient information, they can make decisions for themselves rather than thinking that by hiding them away from this part of our history and the part of our reality, perhaps we are protecting their innocence. Uh, in a society that social injustices and violence are very prevalent, uh, it's difficult to claim that when you hide such information from the young ones, you are protecting their innocence. I love that you said that because I was just thinking that when you said it's the miseducation and it's so driven by this idea, I think that, you know, as you said, we're protecting them. But I think it also goes to what we are going to talk about, these kind of idea of colorblind laws, where if we start them young without talking about it, they just won't be affected by it. And yet they can't help but be affected by it because they're growing up in a society where it's all pervasive, if that makes sense. Yes, I mean, exactly the point. I mean, the irony of colorblind, you know, uh, logic, if there is anything like that. And I've always, you know, in my training, I've always pointed this uh, uh, scenario out. You know, imagine uh, a cashier who works at a restaurant, and anytime you order something and you are supposed to be given a change, this cashier will end up giving you less money than you require. And the explanation the cashier gives is that, well, the reason why I can't give you the right change is because I am not mathematically inclined. And so that is why I give you less than you deserve. But, but here is where we would test if the cashier is being sincere with that notion. For somebody who is not mathematically inclined, we expect that occasionally uh, this cashier will give more change than what customers deserve and occasionally less change than customers deserve. But where consistently this cashier gives less change in all scenarios, then there is something suspicious about this notion of not being mathematically declined. And, and so, you know, when we take that same logic and apply to colorblind argument, for a society that we claim to be colorblind, you know, isn't it ironic that when it comes to areas of privilege and power, we are able to identify people of European descent and assign them those you know, positions. However, when we go to prison system or when we are looking at people who are struggling most in our society, it is always you know, people of color, racialized people, indigenous people, black people, they are always the victims. So the question is, how can a colorblind society be so good in assigning punishment when Colors, you know, are not supposed to be significant, but yet it managed to, you know, skew, skew it towards one color. And when it comes to privilege, you know, we skew it. I, I think that for me, the color blindness argument is, is you know, societal way of deflecting responsibility, you know. And again, the notion of protecting children innocent coming 
and color blindness become a way that adults also try to protect their innocent. Oh, I love that. And we're jumping ahead. And I'm sorry, because normally I don't even jump ahead. I'm so good about getting right into it. But you just caught me right in with education there. But um, so before we go further, then I should say, I do want to hear how did you end up doing this type of work? I mean, you started in at the University of Toronto, but it's really, you know, from the beginning, as I read, it is all encompassing in your life, the type of work that you're doing. So how did this become your path? I mean, here I want to uh, uh, draw uh, from a statement that, you know, uh, my mentor, uh, uh, who is in the person of uh, Professor Josh Day, uh, who is a well-known anti-racist scholar in the University of Toronto. Uh, He said that uh, for a black person, there is nothing called undercover scholarship. And the reason why as a black person, uh, you know, our work and in, in, in my case, my work must always speak uh, to my indebtedness to the Black community, uh, knowing very well that my presence in this space at this particular moment did not come by fluke, you know, by fluke of nature. You know, it took historical effort, the struggles of you know, people who have gone before me who make it possible for a Black person like me, first of all, to be in Canada, to for my humanity in this historical moment to even be acknowledged and let alone being allowed into uh, intellectual spaces such as the ivory tower. Uh, And so what I have come to understand is that if others paved the way for me me to be where I am, then I have a responsibility in ensuring that I become part of the struggle to make sure we build a better future. You know, during the apartheid regime in South Africa, there was a particular statement that was often repeated, and it goes like this. Our struggle is the struggle of memory against forgetfulness. And for Black people uh, living in North America and in European society in a broader sense, our struggle has always been a struggle of memory, trying to erase, you know, our history. And, and in, in also in particular, uh, uh, the social condition that today has positioned Black people as not fully human in our society. And in order for our story to be told, they need complete sense. I think that every Black person have a responsibility in joining uh, the, the broader narration, in helping you know, to throw more light into the conditions uh, and the history of black people. And, and for a black scholar, there shouldn't be even any two ways about that. It should be what is required of us. We can't simply separate our scholarship from our activism because our scholarship define our being and it must reflect it in the activist work that we do every day. That is so beautifully put. And I I want to touch on one thing you said about that memory, the the struggle against memory, because it just triggered for me the my daughter took a course recently, it was decolonized black history. And I felt so ashamed when she came to me with did you know, listing off these facts that, you know, the fact that, you know, 
North America had been discovered well before Columbus and everything, which we knew with indigenous groups, but even visiting non-indigenous groups from Africa. And we see the trace, these things going on. And you just think, no one ever taught me this. This was never a part of my worldview, history, etc. And I just think we've erased a an entire culture, one that, as we'll get to, because I think it's actually relevant to some of the things we're going to talk about, particularly the idea of, you know, the expectations put on families and whatnot. It feels like the expectations that we have are rooted in a false history and a false narrative. And yet, so this scholarship that I guess brings that to the back, I never thought of it from the perspective of memory, but rather moving forward. And yet, of course, you can't go forward without going back. That's my thought all over the place there. I hope that's made some semblance of sense, but it, it does. <laughs> it was just, it was very eye opening for me because it's true. We always talk about, you know, you need to know your past to move forward. But if the past isn't there, how do you navigate that because it's been erased? Yeah. And, 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 and you know, that has always been the the strategy of you know, the colonial strategy in terms of that is why when we look at the history of colonization and even uh, residential school, you know, when we talk specifically to about indigenous people, uh, the colonial strategy has always been how do we go back to the past of this group and these communities and erase them. And so colonization, the violent nature of colonization is not just the taking over of people's land. That is the, you know, it is equally important, but the most harmful aspect of colonization is the erasing of people's memory by taking away their history and their knowledge, uh, and, and sometimes their language. Because in the absence of language, in the absence of your history, in the as absence of your knowledge, your identity gets lost. And when you lose your identity, you have nothing. Because then you rely on the other to tell you who you are and what you are. And for Black people, this has been a violent aspect of our history that we are daily fighting to, to make sense of that. That is, yeah. Uh, yes, there's nothing else I can say, but that that is, I, I think, exactly. And, and here we're going to take it, I think, in your work, too, what I love is this taking it a step further into the other realm in which we pass on this knowledge, which is parenting. And why, when you bring up the residential schools, they were so effective. You take the child away from the family unit, they can't pass on what knowledge is there that gets removed. And it has happened throughout history, throughout colonization. So when we look at your work, you have spent a very long time doing incredible work talking to families around Canada, not just in Newfoundland, but around Toronto, Winnipeg, and Newfoundland are your three main hubs, correct? Yes, that is correct. And so you've been talking about parenting in a white culture, really, with and, and a white supremacist culture. But one of the things I, I want to start in on some of the terminology you're going to use so that everyone's on the same page here, because I think that's really important when we talk about this stuff. So one of the things you used in this was to look at what you called effective parenting. And it's a really interesting term because I, I, it conjures, as someone who does a lot of work in parenting, it conjures a lot of different thoughts coming to mind here. So I wanted to know what for you 
does effective parenting mean? What is that in your research when you're looking at that term? Thank you very much, you know, Tracy. Uh, let me, you know, to answer that question, perhaps let me uh, situate it into something that, uh, 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 you know, others have talked about in terms of the, the, the unavoidable usefulness of something that is equally dangerous. For black parents, parenting is not, or what constitutes effective parenting, is not so much about what is happening. It's not the means, but it is the end. So let me give you one example. Uh, you know, I love my mom. Uh, I think that if, you know, parenting is Olympics game, I would definitely nominate my mom for the gold medals. But while saying this, I also genuinely believe that if my mom had raised me in Canada, she would have been in jail by now because of her style of parenting. And I remember, you know, a while ago when I went to Ghana and in, in sort of, you know, uh, a jovial conversation, I said that, Mom, do you know that I can really file a lawsuit against you for all the abuse that you subjected me to growing up as a child? And she laughed and looked at me and said, but look at how you have turned out to be. So for my mom, the ends justify the means. And in, ma in many cases, when I talk to black parents, when they talk about effective parenting, it's not so much about the process. It's how their children have turned out to be, to be responsible children, the children that they can look up to and say that I am proud. But there are also other aspects of it that you know, complicate how black parents you know, understood effective parenting. Because you know, when you live in a society where there is you know, a constant, you know, experiences of anti-black racism and white supremacist you know, ideology. Uh, black parents are trying to raise their children to also survive in this environment. I, I know that, I mean, the death of Mr. Floyd, you know, George Floyd became a global issue. And in Canada, you know, white, black, brown, you know, uh, indigenous, everyone we're raising questions. But for black parents, in particular mothers, when they watch the video, what they see is that how do I make sure that this never happened to my child? Because for many of us, what separates Mr. Floyd in those experience and what every black person stand potential of experiencing is perhaps hours may happen where there, there wouldn't be anybody with you know video camera to record the experience. And so parenting is about also providing children strategies that will ensure that you can survive in this anti-black racism environment. And sometimes, and I think we will be talking about that, the means of achieving that come across in a very negative way because it doesn't fit into 
the general expectation of how the child welfare system defines what good parenting is. And we will get to that because I think that's such a at the heart of what's going on. One of the things that I was really struck by in your work was the discussion of Baumrein's types of parenting. And in particular, this distinction between authoritarian and authoritative, and even more distinct, the use of control in this, right? It felt, you know, I think, I'm not sure if you put it directly this way, but what I took from it was in white culture, we have this idea of the use of control simply as a means of control. It is there to control the child. It's just as through colonization, we use control to control other people. We use control to control our children. It is very negative in that way because there isn't an end result except for our own sense of power over another individual. But it sounds like that's very different than the type of control that what you've seen and what has been reported by so many Black families within Canada. And is that fair to say that what you're describing about this means to an end is really this control, but for the sake of a better outcome? Yeah, yes. And, and, and in many ways, you know, and I think that, you know, Tracy, we also need to put it in a very broader context. The argument we are presenting here is not that the way, uh, you know, people of European descent, in particular, the white community raise their children are wrong. What we are saying is that it works for them, but for black communities, sometimes adopting the same strategy without tweaking it is a potential danger. So for instance, you know, the idea that well, children have rights and the children should be allowed to exercise their rights in a way that reduces the element of control. The, the, what the black parents struggle to understand is that the system has never treated black children as children. We've never been considered as children. We are always, even when you know, minors, black minors commit crime, they sometimes get tried as adults. When police are interacting with black children, they are not children. I mean, we, we remember recent experience that happened in Peel region where you know a school board at the school board, a five-year-old girl, the principal called police on. And when the police came, said that the, the five-year-old girl was posing a risk and put the child in a handcuff. The child was never treated as a child. But I guarantee you that if a black parents, even in their parenting experience, have done half of what these police officers did, she will have been in jail by now, or he will have been in jail by now. So for black parents, how do we maneuver a system that on one hand do not give black children a chance to make mistakes? How do you raise your children in such an environment? So in many ways, the home environment is a role play environment where the parent becomes the authority figure and say that, I want to train you about the racial rules of encounter as a black person. When you go out there and the person in authority is talking to you, you don't talk back. You don't go out there and say that this is my right because I, as a parent, I don't have time to come to the mob to identify your body because you raise your voice or you try to challenge the law 
enforcement officer and you end up be, being shot dead. Or I don't want to come to jail to bail you because you try to insist on your right. So here is the scenario. Don't talk back when adults talk to you. Now, how would I know that you will follow this simple regulation? At home, as your parent, I am the authority figure. I am the adult. If you talk back when I tell you to do something, what you are telling me is that when you go outside, that is exactly what you are going to do. And I cannot afford it. So the concept of control is not because black parents enjoy controlling their children. It is the nature of the environment. Then we can also talk about black children that were raised at refugee camps. In refugee camps where, you know, life at the refugee camp is very fragile. And little mistake could lead to a child death. So there is a particular way that parents raise their children at refugee camps. And the point is that when they migrate to Canada, they sadly do not live out. Because everything is about survival. And that is where the system gets black parents wrong. This is not to suggest that every element of you know, uh, parental abuse you know, being done by black parents is justified. That is not what the argument here. What we, there are moments where intervention is necessary and important. But when we begin to double into you know, assessment tools such as emotional violence, because a parent you know, screams at a child, it becomes a benchmark of defining that the parent doesn't like the child. Then I think that this is the, where the element of bringing the unique cultural and racial environment in which black parents raise their children become an important addition to the conversation. It's a lot. It reminds me of um, what might be called the fear-based parenting, is that you, when you have to parent out of fear of the outcomes, as in refugee camps and everything, it's a very different ballgame. You can't expect the same types of behaviors as you would when you have nothing to fear. Um, and that is, which makes utter sense. And I'm glad you brought up exposure to the system because that was actually leading into what I want to ask because you have focused a lot on child welfare services and the exposure to child welfare services and I um I I have issues with child welfare services in general not the least of which are due to very outdated ideas and and whatnot. But you have argued that child welfare services is built on white supremacy, racism, and colonialism. I agree with you 100%. But I do know that probably some people listening will have a very hard time taking that to heart. There is a belief in the system and a, and a belief that our systems are are not built on that, that they're built on the best interests of the child, that that transcends culture and everything. Can you describe for us why you would make that argument that that is the case, especially here in Canada, even though I think everything you say would probably be applicable to the U.S. and elsewhere as well. But what is it? How do we get people to understand how these systems were built in in that vein? Okay, I mean, let's let's even start with the concept of we are seeking the best interest of the child and how we separate the interests of the family and community from the interests of the child, where it, it, it builds on the concept of the individuality. 
So, so the whole and which itself makes sense, you know, within European system of thought. But you know, and and as I started the argument, the logic here is that it's not that people of European descent are wrong, but it is also wrong to presume that such understanding of family applies to everybody. So the the notion that uh, 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 you know, the, the best interest of a child should be separated from the interest of the family and the interest of the community has been the basis and the logic in which colonial violence and racist practice have happened throughout Canadian history. I mean, can anybody, try, you know, explain to me that somehow the, 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 the child welfare workers that went into indigenous people's home and took their children and put them into residential school were not thinking about the child's interest. Today, we know uh, um, many social workers look back to this historical moment and feel terrible that how could social workers do that? How could child welfare do that? But they were also working in the best interest of a child. The question is how would the next generation in 50 years' time, we'll look at what is happening. But not only that, even despite the historical regret that we have expressed about residential school, it never ends. We have the 1960 schools, where indigenous children was once again removed from their parents and put into white foster homes. Again, they were working in the best interest of a child. We can talk about also the, the 70s, the 1980s, the millennial schools. So the whole concept of you know, best interest of a child, we are all asking is that, how do other cultures define the best interest of a child? Is it exclusively about the child or also the collective interest of the community and the family? are equally vital to, to looking at the whole conversation around the best interest of a child. And that is my point, that it is not the notion that we are looking for the best interest of a child is wrong, but the, what constitutes the best interest of a child is built on colonial agenda, and in many cases, remove every element. So, so the, the presumption that somehow other cultures and groups do not have best interest of a child. And here I will give you one example of one story that one, one parent mentioned during the, uh, the, my research on parenting. This is a mother who has to carry her, her son during the period of war in one of the countries in Africa. And she said that she, you know, she has to carry her child at her back and they crawl on the ground day and night for three nights before finally they were able to find a refugee camp. And finally brought her child to Canada. And because her child did something that the parents, you know, disciplined the child or spanked the child, suddenly she's being told that she doesn't have the best interest of her child. I mean, how do, how do you make sense of that? So, the, 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 you know, and, and, and this has not just been about indigenous people. 
This is the same thing that happened when we are looking at the colonial practices in all over the world. The sense that people of European descent think that they alone know what is the right way for everybody. So they move into communities, and the first thing is the true you know, schools, whether formal or residential school, try to build European system into them because, quote-unquote, they are there to save their children. I just have to say, I think you're kinder than I want to be because you said that it's not that this... European train of thought about best interest of the child only without consideration of the other is inherently wrong, but it's not inclusive. I actually think it's inherently wrong. I say that not only because of the effects on other cultures, but we even can look to the effects on children more generally from being separated from those they love. And we know biologically, neurologically speaking, children are part of a unit. They're interdependent upon others. And that interdependency doesn't go away just because someone doesn't like what's happening with parents. And I just want to, I'm not even sure where I'm going with that. I just want to say that I think you're too kind and it, it is wrong what they're doing. And it's wrong across the board <laughs> because for so many, for not just cultural reasons, there's a whole layer of added culture, but it's just plain wrong. That's not how children should, they should not be taken from families unless absolutely, yes, there are certain cases where imminent threat is there and you have to take, that's just survival. But by and large, you know, all these cases you describe and the idea, I mean, that story, how anyone could think that mother does not have her child's best interests at heart is beyond the pale. No, no, Tracy, I think what what I meant by the, the thought of having the best interest of a child is not necessarily wrong. Because who can argue against the idea that you have a child's best interest? Fair. It, it, it is rather what constitutes the definition of the best interest of a child. That itself is you know, very exclusive. And it doesn't include how other cultures and other race also define what constitutes the best interest of a child. And, and, and I think that is the problem. So oftentimes, you know, people throw words and play with the language. And, and, and the language are so, you know, the language is so seductive that, you know, on the, on the surface, who can argue against the fact that we are there for the best interest of a child? Because apparently, if you are not there for the best interest of a child, then who are you? But the parents, like, let's break it down. And let me tell you a story why what I did was also in the best interest of a child. I think you're right. That language is so seductive because it is, you can't say, no, I don't have my child's best interest at heart because that's not what's happening. It is, I just think, I get so angry when I think about them. Um, but I think... Yes, it's what constitutes the best interest of a child. And I think they have that element ass backwards. I just don't, I, I think the notion of this independence and that we can separate children and they're supposed to be able to, you know, thrive without the support of those they're close to is irrational and idiotic, quite frankly. And yet that's the cornerstone. And then if you're starting to hold other cultures to a cultural standard that's, again, irrational, 
you end up with a system that is inherently broken. It's it's a problem. But and I think going to the argument of white supremacy, I don't have the numbers and I, I would imagine you have it. But the disproportionate number of children in Canadian welfare service protection, so whether it's having been removed, is insane when we look at, you know, black and indigenous youth. They make do you what is the numbers that they make up? Well, well you know, in case of you know, uh, uh, Ontario, for instance, I think that, you know, uh, when we look at the children presently in care, uh, black children constitute, I think, 40%, you know. Uh, but there is also another piece to the equation, Tracy, and that is where it, it, it serves as a worrying pattern, where uh, people use child welfare as a means of punishing people. So if your neighbor doesn't like you, the only thing that, because if they call police, of course, when police come around, and the police will do investigation and others, they call child welfare on you and say that, you know, I saw a child being abused. Of course, the, the law is very clear, the duty to report. And the child welfare officers will send somebody in to do an investigation. They screen the call and then they will, they will do a follow-up investigation. But the problem here is that once your name, if somebody made a first call and talk about Tracy and a potential child abuse, initially they may not, they may treat it as you know, one of the uh, calls that should not be taken seriously. But if it comes the second one, now it moves to another level where this time they attach you know, a further scrutiny. Now, the third one, the, so the more you are being called, you know, your name is being called, the more it's raising flag. And, and in the child welfare system, they call it flagging, you get flagged. You know, and, and, and this put families, you know, in a state where sometimes, because there have been so many calls, when parents are being investigated, you know, the, the, the child welfare officer also have to pay particular attention to make sure that they do not miss anything. And, and look, I, 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 I totally empathize with, you know, child welfare workers. You know, I, 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 it's part of my training and I understand the challenge of the work involved. The, the idea that if there is potential danger, or potential harm, and you do not do proper work, proper due diligence, and it slips through, and harm come upon the child. Uh, you know the individual officers who were involved, uh, the individual child welfare workers who were involved, uh, who get into you know a lot of trouble. I mean, in in Newfoundland, we we have a case of you know Tena, uh, where it was a major issue in 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 2003 where you know there was evidence that the child was in danger and not further steps were done and the child could you know in the process was you know was killed so this is not to suggest that child welfare work is easy we understand that yes in order for them to make sure that they have crossed their t's and dotted their i's they need to do proper diligence but if the information 
is not true. If your neighbors are trying to use that, use child welfare to punish you, then the more the child welfare officer searches, the more it provokes families. And for, for many parents, sometimes who don't understand how the system works, they may in the process do something or say something that further put them up for further investigation. So, you know, the, the point is that we are a society that have a system to protect children. But because laws are made for human beings to implement, and in a racist society where the other is always perceived to be you not know, a good parent, it put them in a sort of you know, surveillance that makes life very, very uncomfortable for them. I want to ask a bit here because I think it goes back to what you said about the definition of best interest too, because I see absolutely the point when there's when it's being used as punishment, there's no that is wrong. But of course, in a racist society, that also is just one other tool, which is part of why the system is built on white supremacy and racism, because it's enabled that white supremacy and racism to persist amongst, you know, day to day neighbors and communities. But I also feel that and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you've been trained in this and everything. It seems like the fear, as you talked about, of a child fair worker missing something. There is a risk of great harm when something is missed, but that risk is still, relatively speaking, I hate to say it, it's small. It's it's huge if it's your child. It's huge if it's a child you care about, but it is wrong. Whereas the persistent removal of children from family units that are caring due to cultural misunderstandings, due to a failure to have been properly trained in understanding, you know, what immigrant families are coming from. It does harm. It's an actual harm. That removal and that involvement harms the child. It harms the families. The harm may not be as great on a scale. You may be looking at the risk of great harm and then, you know, but it's a guaranteed harm to every child that has to face that. Every child that is taken, every child and family that's put under scrutiny, the stress of that is there. It feels like that somehow has to be taken into consideration in this system here, because although we're trying to avoid this one great harm, we're actually facilitating harm to families on a regular basis. <laughs> that, that is actually the conundrum that uh, the child welfare system faces. Uh, on one hand, the system is there to protect children from any harm. Uh, you know, and, and, and there is no doubt that in some situations, children are in genuine harm and need to be protected from. And in some situations, the harm is a benign, benign one. But unfortunately, it is not a choice sometimes between good and bad. It's sometimes not even a choice between black and white. It is when there are gray areas, then the worker also 
have to deal with the question. Should I give the parents the benefit of the doubt and risk if something goes wrong that I will be in danger? Or maybe should I follow through? Now, I, I agree that, you know, the child welfare system continue to put in different mechanisms to ensure that there are a certain level of check and balances. Uh, you know, so they have, you know, the risk assessment. They also have, you know, you know, safety also assessment and make sure that they, they compare the notes to make the final decision. But the argument here is right now, the whole system and how it has been built, we really need to take a critical look at it. Because we have a system that even when we talk about looking for the child's best interest, it is built on the idea of protecting the child from harm and not necessarily to prevent conditions that would lead to harm. I'm so glad you said that because you are jumping in here. I I want to, to go back a step to something you brought up, which is about the issue of most of this comes from discipline and that most of the issues in your papers and the scenarios, because you talk to a lot of families and a lot of the, you know, the example you gave about the refugee mother who spanked her child and then faced this issue here. And everyone knows me, I'm not a big fan of spanking. Just from the research, that's not something I, I think is good. However, do I think it's grounds to take a child away? Do I think it's grounds to dismiss another form of parenting? Do I think we look at it without a broader lens? No. It doesn't make sense to do that. But I do think even if we take that view of, say we take my view, I have my spanking is bad and I'm in charge and I'm going to say I don't want anyone spanking. It feels like what the system's missing is this notion of how do we help families when there's a disconnect, get to where we want them to be. It's we're not we're. It's funny, you talked about effective parenting at the beginning, being about what's the end goal, parenting for the end goal. And if we think about child welfare services as being a parent in this, they're not parenting for the end goal. They're parenting out of punishment and not out of this idea of what's going to happen at the end. It's very reactive as opposed to being... um, reflective or thought out or with goals in mind and is it even the role like you talk about assessments and checklists and everything but what is the balance here between a system that might say hey we're going to help you integrate right which we don't have so I mean first off it's an imaginary system in which we say you know this was called we see this happening let's work on it versus full acceptance of cultural differences, even when they don't mesh within our societal group, which is, which do you think would be perceived as being a better solution for some of the struggles facing a lot of the families you've spoken to? I think that one of the best solutions is for us to think about avenues where child welfare system will also be involved with a lot of education. You know, when, when, you know, people uh, migrate to Canada, uh, some of them are not even familiar with the parenting rules and regulations. In fact, for many of the parents that I spoke to, 
some of them claim that they only became aware of such rules and regulations after they have been caught you know, breaking them. So then the notion is that what mechanism have we put in place to ensure that uh, newly arrived immigrants have received sufficient education about the parenting rules and regulation, as well as to talk about permissible parenting practices and those that the law you know, frown upon. That is one aspect. There is also another aspect of parenting, which in most conversations, especially when we are looking at the questions around neglect. And, and this is the point where some of us have always raised the question. When, when it comes to, we talk about abuse, but the, the language abuse within the child welfare rules and regulation is broad and sometimes so vague to define. No, there are, you know, the physical, you know, uh, 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 or corporal punishment is clear. And we are able to define and identify that. But the language around emotional abuse is a tricky one. So now you can, when you scream at a child, when your child is doing something and you, you talk to the child, you know, with your voice being, you know, deep, you are at the risk of being accused of being emotionally abusive. Have we taken into consideration cultural backgrounds and how in certain cultures they talk louder? Also, even the whole question around language and how we need to understand what language really means for different cultures. Because for many African languages, we don't have a word for spanking. So when parents, you know, when child welfare shows up and parents says, ask a question, did you beat your child? Yes, I beat the child. They won't use the word spank. They use the word beat. Beat is an assault. It's a criminal, you know, act. But when they use the word beat, instead when they actually mean spanking, to what extent do the investigation further look into the deeper content? And here, this is the point where making sure that within the child welfare system, there is fair representation, that child welfare will hire more Blacks, indigenous, and other racialized people within the child welfare system to help them un understand the unique cultural context. So, for instance, when 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 the Jamaica mom says that I brought you into this world and I'm going to take you out and no one can do anything to me, does that mean that they are really going to kill their children? There is one incident that happened you know, uh, uh, in one of the, 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 the research communities that I did, where a child was performing poorly at school. And the, and the principal told the child, uh, look, I'm going to call your mom. And the child said, please don't do that, because my mom will kill me. And they took that statement, literally, and called child welfare. Are you serious? How does a principal not hear that from every child that's in the office when they say, I'm going to call your parents? And that is the element of where the notion of racism, anti-Black racism, you know, already there, there is a perception that, you know, uh, uh, Black 
people don't know how to love their children, whatever that means and whatever that looks. So when the child said, don't call my mom because you know she will kill me, that was taken literally. And the call was made to you know the child welfare. So in, in many cases, sometimes I don't also uh, completely blame the child welfare system. We, we, we live in, and that is why I talk about you know the child welfare system is built on 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 the on on you know white supremacist assumption. The notion that some people see themselves as superior and others are inferior. So you know if if maybe the child is you know uh, of European descent and the, the child you know the child has said my mom will kill me maybe the principal will not take it literally. But if it's an African child my mom will kill me means my mom will kill me. This just reminds me or brings me back to the issue of what the best solution is because it feels like even you know obviously the education around the cultural differences and how we speak especially the language one it sounds like language is a, a massive barrier in so many ways on both sides of parents you know using the term beat but welfare workers not understanding the types of nuances and language that exist across culture sayings whatnot i remember um, you had a very similar example to like, I'll brought you into this world and I'll kill you in one of the stories. And luckily it came to a caseworker who knew and just laughed and said, that's not, trust me, that's nothing. That's just a parenting that, you know, we need that. But, you know, I, I do think about things like, okay, can we teach, you know, can we acclimatize in a way of what are other tools outside of say spanking, right? If this is something that is not allowed, how do we, but would those even be helpful given we're still in a racist society and given that effective parenting for the end goal of, you know, what you're aiming to do at the end? How do you get there when you're, the environment you're in is so different than where these ideas and where these practices come from? I mean, you know, and, and this is where the education piece become important. That it become a two, you know, it become a bidirectional, you know, where, you know, uh, child welfare workers are trying to educate parents about the parenting rules and regulation and mechanism of enforcing discipline. And perhaps also hearing uh, from, from parents and understanding the unique cultural context. You see, there's an element of even discipline that is built not only in white culture, but it's white middle class, upper class. So the, the notion that when the child is misbehaving, time out, go to your room. Well, it's not every family that is privileged to have a child have their own room. That time out means go to your room. In certain families, they don't have that. But my, our concern is where poverty is being defined as abusive parenting, it becomes dangerous because then we are building a class system. And it is that part that is very concerning. I mean, let's look at the data. I, I mean, how many of the children that has been taken and put in care come from middle and upper class families? I'm gonna guess close to none, if it's not none. Yeah, are we trying to suggest that the upper and the middle class family, you know, the issues around, you know, parenting, they are, you know, perfect? Oh God, no. No, they're not even close. They're you know, and you see it, it's just they get to buffer their negative effects a little bit more because of the privilege that they have. Yeah. Exactly my point. And they also be able to lawyer up. 
you pick their children and they you know they are they are, they are not coming to court alone they are coming with lawyers and child welfare workers knows that but you know some of these immigrant parents don't even know for them all they know is that they show up and some of them sometimes even show up without even understanding the language and there's nobody there to even explain what is happening to them so there's no system like i'm appalled by our system here but there is no system by which they're given representation from someone to help them through this process normally it's supposed to be so but at what point do they get representation is it when the child welfare workers show up in their house to do investigation? Do they have representation there? They should. Well, they are. So, they should, but do they get them? No. And and these parents sometimes don't understand why somebody should come to their house to say that we have heard reports that you know you are abusing your child, or a child here is at you know at risk. And there's one aspect too that I even failed to mention, and that is concerning food. And how food in the school system poses a great risk for you know, uh, black families. Because we have different food systems. And so you 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 get you cook, you think that you've cooked your best meal for your child to send to school. And as soon as the child sends the food to school, friends start teasing the child. What is this? No, this smell bad. So what happened next is that the child go home and say, mom, I can't take this food to the school again. And of course, many immigrants' parents like, what is wrong with this food? So the next day, the child will take the food. The, the parents will say, take the food. So as soon as the child reached school, they would dump the food into the, you know, into garbage. Cabbage can. And then during lunchtime, everybody is eating. This child is sitting without any food. And of course, teachers will ask, so where is your food? The child is not going to tell the truth that I, you know, I was giving food and you know, throw it in the garbage. Well, I didn't have any for child welfare. Child is being abused. Oh, the number of different ways in which... I mean, it's really something, the number of ways in which the system fails these families and just the cultural ineptitude of our systems in general. I want to talk about, because we talked at the beginning how we were going to come back to it, the expectations for black children and the idea that they don't get to be children. And it's kind of the issue in some of your articles, you talk about this idea that society has lower expectations for black children. And I feel like it's a bit of both. There, There's higher expectations because the idea that they can achieve the same in this environment somehow assumes they're able to do superhuman things, but they've got the expectations that they can't possibly live up to. And then that leads to the idea of these lower expectations. Does that ring like does that make sense at all and how does that expectation fit in with their engagement with systems whether it's the child welfare service school etc how do these expectations play a role in this overall parenting battle that they have too okay but maybe i can answer this question uh in terms of telling my own personal story i i i came to canada as an adult somebody who has finished 
you know, first degree to do my master's, you know, and PhD at University of Toronto. And 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 I remember, you know, doing my graduate program at University of Toronto at that time. I mean, somebody who have migrated from Ghana to Canada, you know, one of the errors I made is that I came here in, in January. And anybody who is familiar with the, 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 the weather Why did you do that? Yeah, what were you the, thinking? The weather condition in Ghana is where, you know, we are talking about a place when the temperature is plus 18. We, we, we will all be you know, wearing, uh, you know, warmer clothes because we feel it's cold. So, I mean, the complete change of weather was a huge experience for me. And then there was an element of cultural shock. And, and at certain point, you know, I was asking myself, did I make the right decision in, in, in coming to Canada to pursue my graduate? Because there was a sense that I felt that I am a footnote. I don't have what it takes to be, to pursue graduate degree until, you know, and, and I've had many wonderful professors, but there was one meeting that I had with one of my props. Uh, her name is uh, Injoki Wan, Professor Injoki Wan. She is currently the, the, the head of you know, uh, social justice education uh, department. She gave a short you know, assignment in class and I wrote my paper and gave it to her. So uh, a week later, after she has read the paper and graded it, she asked, a question, and I'm not I'm probably she may not even remember this story. So she asked me, So, Paul, uh, tell me, is the are you doing your PhD? So I said, No, 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 I, at that stage, I was doing my master's. So, no, I am doing my master's degree. And said, So, this is your second master's degree. And then I said, No, 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 this is my first master's. And said, Wow, you write like somebody who is doing his PhD. And that statement changed me because sadly it helped me to understand that I am not a footnote, that I have what it takes to compete with others. The bottom line is that Dr. Wan saw something in me that I didn't know I have and even doubted it if I have it. And that raised my expectation. The point is that black children are capable of producing excellence. We've just have never been given a chance. And when you go into an education system, nothing is more harmful than when your teachers don't trust you that you have what it takes to succeed. It's like, you know, uh, John C. Maxwell talk about the law of the aid. When the, the aid is lower, it hampers one's ability to excel. And, and in many cases, that is the difference sometimes what children of European descent enjoy. The expectation that they are supposed to be good and excellent in everything. And, and it gives them that confidence. But when Black children are not being given that confidence, that expectation, and anything they write, no one is challenging them that you can do better than this. Meanwhile, when they grow up and become adults, we live in a society that as a Black person, you have to be best in order to be considered 
where good is. It reminds me of, I can't even remember who said it, but it's like, yes, in our society, for a black person to be seen as on par, they really have to be well beyond the scope of That's anything right. a white person can do. It's, That's oh, right. well, now you get our attention. You get our attention right. when you've gone to superhuman. That's is right. but it's yeah why superhuman and in children in particular I, you mentioned and this goes to your education background the challenging and i i love that because it is we challenge our children and that because we expect more of them we expect That's them right. to do the best mm -hmm. and i wonder how that plays in with what families also face because i remember some of these stories that came from from the qualitative work you did seemed to be parents were being punished for trying to challenge their children to be what they could be. And so even when we look at this expectation, we have parents trying to break that mold and then, you know, we come in and no, 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 mm -hmm. no, no, you can't do that. You've got to bring yeah. it back down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that is what I meant when I started with the quote from Spivak that, you know, the useful yet, you know, semi-mournful position of the unavoidable usefulness of something that is equally dangerous. And, and in black, for black parents, that is, you know, the un, unavoidable usefulness of something that is equally dangerous. That I know you can do far better than what you think you are doing. And yet when they are pushing their children to bring the best in them, they are being told that you can't do that. Yet these parents know that the level you are operating, the level that you think that society is cheering you up, that you are doing, you are okay. I guarantee you that the future out there is going to be tougher for you. And I don't want you to get sold by what, you know, the, the society is currently advertising for you. The package they are selling for you, don't buy it. Because if you buy it, the future is going to be bleak. What can be done in schools? To, I mean, we talked about, you know, child welfare services. And there's, I mean, I still am not even sure what to do there outside of the education. And I think, frankly, no person should have a caseworker that does not have at least a very in-depth knowledge, if not personal experience with their culture. But I don't know how feasible that is in, in all things. But you know, it seems like school is a is a similar problem where you see, you know, who does the teacher call on? Who does the teacher mm -hmm. expect better of? Who does the teacher call out for being too showy? On the flip mm -hmm. side, I remember hearing stories of that where yep. you get a black child that actually is confident mm -hmm. and up and out and they get brought down the peg in the classroom mm -hmm. of like, well, you're too confident. You're too, yeah. you know, you can't be, you have to be good, but not good enough. And you can't do yeah. this, but you have to, I mean, there's, you know, a microscopic grain of sand in which you can stand and have the quiet around you of all the things that are wrong. But it's not what would be I mean, you work in education, you educate others. What do you do to overcome this for kids that are in this situation? No, again, I, uh, I will I want to situate my response to uh you know, something that Professor George Day in one of his research he did about the school system in Ontario. And, you know, he talked to a few young black, uh, you know, 
young black, you know, boys and girls. And one of them said that, well, said they keep saying that, you know, black people, you know, lack, you know, uh, self-respect, you know. But it's not that we lack self-respect. It's because we are fighting to keep it. Now, we live in a society that before even a black child showed up in the classroom, they have already been beaten by the media, by the cultural norms, by the, the history, by the story they hear, that they are nothing, nothing good will come out from them. They are criminals. They have been given all sorts of names. And black, black families, we bring our children to school to help schools, to help them to become, to build a better future. And we expect that the school help the children to change that narration. And teachers have a responsibility. For many black children, for many black children that you hear them who have become successful in the education system, who have become responsible adults, will always have one or two teachers that they will single them out. That these teachers adopted me, took me as one of their own and gave me a different expectation. These were the teachers who were not willing to lower the bar for us because they want us to be happy. They want us to be comfortable. They want us to be complacent. No, these were teachers who pushed us and made us believe that we are capable of being the best if we put our thoughts and our mind in it. And those are our heroes and our sheroes. They made sure that we were not comfortable with the condition in which we found ourselves. And so if there's anything, and I always say this, you know, to all the students that I meet in my classes, you know, uh, regardless of, you know, their racial, you know, or cultural background, that for me, others invested and I am where I am today because this individual saw something that I didn't even know I have. And so what I do is also to give back. What I'm saying is that we need more teachers who see teaching not as a job, but they see it as a profession, that they are there. And again, to use the word of you no know, Tupac, who says that, I am not going to say that I will change the world, but I am going to affect the mind that will change the world. And I think that the role of every teacher is to be, to affect the minds that are going to change the world. If teachers don't have, and they don't see that as their calling, then they have no business being in the classroom. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week. I want to add something here that I shared with Dr. Ajay afterwards. As many of you know, I am staunchly anti-spanking. I don't believe it's a tool that should be used in parenting. But does this mean we should be removing children because of it? Removing children when this tool is one that is regularly employed to counter a racist society? I can't say that this is an act that we can look at in isolation. And we certainly can't look at it without addressing the racism that lays underneath it. 
It is still a worthy goal to remove corporal punishment of all kinds for children in all forms, but we cannot do so without addressing the underlying issues that affect this without doing more harm than good. So I just want to say thank you for listening to that because it's something that really struck me in our conversation. Now, next week, I'm joined again by one of my favorite people, Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum of Nurture Neuroscience, as we discuss the realities facing families who have a child in the NICU. Although life-saving medical treatments are something we all benefit from, the experiences of families in this situation may not be as cheery. If you're pregnant, or you've been through this, or you know someone who has, this episode may be what's needed to help support you or them. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.